0: Well, good morning. My name's Jonathan, and I'm one of the pastors on staff at our Norton campus, and it's always good to be here. You guys always make me feel so welcome, and uh, I appreciate that. I'm excited to be with you this morning as we we end up uh, one series and begin a new one. We've been talking about the Bible. We uh, spent a couple of weeks talking about the Bible, uh, what it is. It's reliable. It's accurate. We can trust it. We looked at, why do we read the Bible? It's a a story, just wonderful, the the wonder, the beauty, the glory of God's story that's worth reading, that's worth knowing. We looked at, well then, how do we read the Bible? We read the Bible by, by listening to God and looking for Jesus depending on the Holy Spirit, traveling together. That's what John was mentioning with uh, the long story short. We encourage you to to do this together, travel with someone as we go through the long story short of God's story. Well, that's that's the name of our new series, um, long story short, what is the big picture? What is the the overarching story of the Bible? How do we understand all the different books and and letters and verses and stories that we read in God's much bigger story? Well, think of it this way. When Jennifer and I were first married, we didn't have a, a lot of money. I was going through school. She was looking for a teaching job. And so you know, finances were a little tight. And, and where we lived, uh, entertainment options weren't uh, in abundance. Uh, we lived across the street from a duck farm. Uh, that was our entertainment each morning as they loaded the ducks into the back of a truck and, and that kind of thing. Um, <clears throat> we had a, one of those big box TVs that had like a green hue everything. We had three channels. And so entertainment options were few, but um, one of the things that we did as a young couple just to to spend time together is we would buy a 10,000-piece puzzle. And we would spend the winter just kind of putting it together together. And if you've you've put together puzzles, you realize that there's some key things that, that help you put it together. Uh, One is to look at the picture on the box. (laughs) You look at the picture and you kind of get your context. You kind of get, okay, this is what we're putting together. And so for me, the first thing I would do is I would find the edge pieces and the corner pieces and, and build the framework. And then you would look at the picture and, and you'd see, oh, there's this blue sky. And so kind of go through all the pieces and you find all the blue ones. I was like, oh, there's a, a yellow flower over here, and so, all right, let's look for all the yellow pieces. And you put that together, and you just start piecing it together in that way, looking off of the big picture. Well, it's interesting then that, you know, I, I feel like we approach the Bible in a different way. In fact, we approach the Bible not with a, not with a picture on a box, but with a bag of puzzle pieces. And we kind of, we pour out the pieces, and it's like, oh, yeah, Noah and the ark. Oh, Moses and the, and the Ten Commandments, and Jonah and the, and the big fish, and oh, yeah, John 3.16, for God so loved the world. And, and we put, we take all these verses and different stories, and we have all of these pieces, and we're like... Alright, now what do I what do I do with all these? <laughs> do I do they fit together? Well no, these, these pieces don't fit together, so so what do I do? And sometimes we we just like we get frustrated like how does this connect with this and, and how does this make sense of this? And and we never we fail, we never figure out how to put the pieces together. And when when we don't put the pieces together, we miss the big picture that's been on the box the whole time. You see, when I look at the the picture on the box and I, uh, OH? All right, you're with me. (laughs) And I start seeing, I'm like, What? what is this smooth piece? It's like, oh, that's part of the, oh, that's that's part of Ohio State. And, And I know I can put that together because I'm looking at the big picture. Well, that's kind of what we're doing as we're, as we're looking through, as we're going through this series over the next six weeks. We're looking at the big picture. We're looking at the picture on the puzzle box. How do all of these pieces fit together? What is the long story short of the Bible? You see, from the opening scenes of Genesis to the final chapter of Revelation, weaving through all the diverse strands of the Bible is God's story. And so over the next six weeks, we're going to unwrap the big story of the Bible in six acts, because the Bible is this unfolding drama of God, man, and the world. But here's some things that that we need to remember as we kind of look as we go through god's story as we look at the big picture there's a couple things we need to realize one we're not trying to answer all the questions number two we're, we're not even trying to prove all the different things that we'll encounter in the bible we want to simply help you help us to understand the big story of the bible we want to know the long story short. I think we're all familiar with that phrase. Maybe you're telling somebody a story of something that happened in your life and and it's exciting to you and you're giving all the details and and you can see they're starting to drift away. (laughs) They're getting distracted and so what do you do? It's like, well, and then to make a long story short, I drove away. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that, that kind of thing. is uh, are, are the details important? Well, yes, definitely. Do they sometimes get in the way of appreciating the beauty of the story as a whole? Yeah, they do sometimes. So for the next few weeks, we're gonna be looking at the long story short of the Bible. Because it has a beginning, it has a middle and an end. You miss any part of the story, you're going to miss the complete picture. It's sort of like when Jennifer and I would be putting together these puzzles, and we'd be putting, like, where is that last piece of the sky? And you, you sort through all the pieces, and, and nothing's there, and you get frustrated. It's like, okay, we're, we're done. And, and you get up to leave, and you realize you know, you've been sitting on it the whole time. <laughs> You know, and, and sometimes, you know, if we don't get the whole picture, sometimes we feel that frustration of that missing piece. I, I don't know any of us who pick up a novel and just like, oh, I think I'll start here. <laughs> no, we start at the beginning, right? Not, I don't think there's any of us who watch a movie and it's like, well, let's just skip the beginning and skip the end and watch the middle. It's like, no. We want to see the whole, whole picture, the whole movie as it unfolds. To make sense of the middle, we have to make sense of how the story begins. That being said, for the end of the Bible to really pop for us and see the beauty and wonder of God's story, it only makes sense to start at the beginning. So if you have a Bible or you can grab one or uh, take, your advice, take your device, and turn to the very first book of the Bible, the very first chapter, very first verse, Genesis 1-1. Genesis 1-1. We're gonna be looking at the prologue of God's story this morning because it sets the stage for everything else that's going to happen. It's sort of like building the frame of that puzzle and putting all the edge pieces together. It gives us framework for what we're going to look at over the next few weeks as we fill in the middle of this picture. It gives us context. And so let's jump in. Genesis 1-1 simply says, in the beginning, God. This is a declaration. It's not an argument. It's It's a declaration that everything begins with God. Life begins with God, truth begins with God, understanding begins with God, wisdom begins with God. That's why Genesis 1-1 is the first verse in the Bible, this is where wisdom begins. And so if you skip this, nothing else in the Bible is going to make sense. You skip this, you're going to miss the central fact of the universe. Skip this and you're just going to spend your days nibbling around the edges of truth. You'll know the details of daily life, but you'll never understand where you came from or or why you're here or where you're going. You see, it's interesting because you can never answer the last question, where you're going, until you answer the second question, why are we here? But you can't answer the second question, why we're here, without answering the first, and that is, where did I come from? So everything God wants us to know starts right here in Genesis 1:1. You see knowing God initiated our world helps us to understand our relationship to God more clearly. Because here's the reality, the farther you feel from you feel God is from the act of creation, the farther you're going to feel from God. The farther you feel God is from the act of creation, the farther you will feel from God. You see, it's so much easier to develop a personal relationship with God when you realize that he had a personal hand in creating you. Creation tells us a lot about God, about his character. I mean, here's what I mean by that. If we were to bring in some clay and, and some pottery wheels and, and kind of turn the service into a pottery-making class, <laughs> we would soon begin to clearly see each other's personalities come to life. You see, because there's some in this room this morning that are very detail-oriented, and you can tell by the time and the energy and just how carefully that they form their pot, and and they they put it together and smooth all the edges, perfectly smooth, and, and then may draw an intricate design in the side of it, and you say, that person is a detailed person. Then there's some of us who maybe aren't as detailed, and becomes less about the smooth edges and and intricate designs. It becomes more about, how many can I get done? How fast can I do it? And so they may have like 20 pots lined up, and you realize, okay, there's a person who's not as concerned about design and detail as much as just being productive. You see, we can see the character from what you have made. And then, of course, some of us would be throwing little balls of clay at the people around us. Well, in the same way, we see God's creation pointing to some pretty significant things that we have to know. Psalm 19.1 tells us the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. They tell us something about our God. Romans 1.20, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, divine nature has been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. You see, it's interesting, the Bible doesn't try to prove God, it simply assumes God and explains that the beginning of the story, it's not the beginning of God. The God of no beginning is here at the beginning. (laughs) and it tells us something important about him. The creation tells us something about God. And so the first thing we need to understand from act one creation is this, an eternal God created with a forever perspective and plan. An eternal God created with a forever perspective and plan. In the beginning, God. This little phrase in the beginning means that there was something before there was anything. There was something before there was time. In the beginning, God tells me that the universe is not eternal, but God is. There was a time when the heavens and earth didn't exist, that that the trees around us and the oceans and the mountains, none of it has been here forever only God is eternal. Everything else has a beginning. Even time was created by God. But who created God? Well, the answer is no one created God. He was there from the beginning. He was and is and will always be. I was like, whoa, wait. (laughs) That's hard to wrap our minds around, isn't it? But something or someone had to exist in order for something to exist. (laughs) Now think about that for a while. If you believe the Bible, you realize that that God goes far beyond the reaches of chemistry or biology or history or mathematics or or quantum mechanics or speculations of, of theoretical cosmology. God goes way beyond that. That means that he alone is self-existent. Everything else in the the universe has a beginning. It it has a cause. God alone has always been, is, and will be. Moses recognized this when he wrote in, in Psalm 90, before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the whole world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. I don't know about you, but that's, that's mind-boggling. Everything we know and relate to has a cause or beginning, but God has no cause, no beginning. We don't have a category to fit him into. And so Genesis 1-1 starts with this assumption, he is, God is, he's eternal, he's here today, he was here yesterday, he will be here tomorrow. He was, he is, he will be. You can count on him. And so if God is, then there's hope for the hopeless. There's help for the helpless. If God is, then everything in life has meaning and purpose. All life is precious and sacred. But if God isn't, wow, we've got a real mess. Somehow our stories are rooted in the God who is eternal. Paul writes, even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. And so the story of the Bible is of an eternal God. He has a perspective and a plan for for this world that's not bound by time. The drama we stepped into was, was written in eternity past and will continue into eternity future. A God this wise can be trusted. He knows what I don't know. He has a different perspective on this world. But as we keep going, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, darkness covered the, was over the surface of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light and there was light. And, and all of Genesis one is like this wide angle, this prologue that tells us all the different days of creation and gives us this big picture. And we come to Genesis two and it zooms in on the sixth day, on, on the day that, me, that God created man. But in the beginning of the story of the Bible, we see God who has no beginning and complete control. And this is significant because other ancient creative accounts, even modern arguments, suggest a creative story that is a result of chaos and explosions and disruption. So the second thing we learn about God is a sovereign God created with power and order. Sovereignty means that God is ultimately in control. God is in control. God's creation expresses his control. We read in Colossians chapter 1, He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's in complete control, and he creates simply with the power of his word. God said, and there was. God said, and there was. God said, and there was. We read in the Psalms, By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, their starry host by the breath of his mouth, for he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. In control, and with the simple power of his word, he creates all that is. There's an order, there's a rhythm to it. We see this in the, in the creation account. Day one, he turns on the lights. Day two, he makes a sky. Day three, he forms the dry land and he gathers the water into seas. He puts vegetation on that dry land and, and that has seed to produce after its kind. On day four, he put lights in the expanse, the sun, the moon, the stars. Day five, he puts animals in the water and in the sky, each according to their own kinds, and then gave them a way to reproduce, each according to their own kind. Day six, he puts, he puts animals on the land according to their kind. And then the pinnacle of creation, God creates man in his image. And so we see God building order into his creation. Seasons, days, and years, he built order into astronomy. According to their kinds, he built order into our biology. see, this origin, this order shouts, there is design, there's a plan. And so look up at the the stars, uh, study a, a blade of grass, study a beehive. Watch how cells divide, explore the the properties of light. There's a plan there. He brings order from chaos. His creation expresses his power in ways that that we can't even begin to fathom. Consider just the enormity of of the universe that we're in. It's interesting, if, if you could travel at the speed of light It would take about eight minutes to go from the Earth to the Sun. To go from the Sun to the center of the Milky Way, in which the the solar system, our system resides, would take 33,000 years. The Milky Way begins through this this group of about 20 other galaxies known as the local group or the local cluster. To cross this local cluster, you'd have to travel at the speed of light for two million years. Well, to make a long story short, <laughs> to cross the entire known universe would take about 20 billion years. I don't know about you, but I, <laughs> I feel pretty small right now. Even in the seemingly endless expanse of the universe, God demonstrates his power and control. The prophet Isaiah marvels at this when he writes, To whom will you compare me, or who is my equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry hosts one by one and calls them each by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. I don't know about you, but every time I look up to a sky filled with stars, I'm reminded of God's goodness. I'm reminded of God's power, His creativity, His control, His sovereignty over all things. Because He's the Creator, He's greater than His creation. Because he is a creator, he's absolutely supreme over all things. That means there's nothing in my life that's greater than God. There's nothing that baffles me that baffles him. Nothing that stumps me stumps him. He is the unstumpable God. (laughs) J.D. Greer in his book, Not God Enough, says it this way. We don't need a God who is merely the missing piece in our dissatisfied lives. We need a God who rules the universe, the sentimental, precious moments God who offers pat answers and rides around in the passenger seat of our lives, making things smoother and happier, fails to offer a sufficient explanation for the glories, tragedies, and mysteries of the universe. Simple logic will show us that only a God of inestimable size could have created the universe. Only a God of perfect righteousness can fulfill our longings for justice. And as we all see, only a God of unfathomable grace would be willing to redeem us. This is the kind of God whose greatness we crave, whose presence makes, makes us want to both draw close and run away. God is wiser than we thought. He's bigger than we can imagine. But there's something else that we we don't want to miss. He's better than we dreamed. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good. Seven times in the creation narrative account, we see God saying that what he created is good. Here's what that tells us, a good God created with beauty and design. His goodness is seen in the beauty of what he's created, in the intricate design of his creation. For example, if there were no trees or plants of of any kind, we we couldn't live because the plants provide the oxygen that we need to breathe, and then we provide the, the carbon dioxide the plants need to live And there's this amazing balance that God has put into creation. Our planet is perfectly designed to sustain life. If it were closer to the sun, we would burn up. If it were further from the sun, we'd freeze. If if the earth was just a few miles smaller in diameter, the density of its atmosphere would be so thin that the earth wouldn't retain enough heat to sustain life. But if the earth were a few miles larger in diameter, the air would become so dense that there would be too much heat absorbed, resulting in just the death of all living things. If the earth was tilted at any more or less than 23 degrees, we'd lose our, our seasons and life wouldn't be able to exist. If our moon was any closer, our tides would envelop entire continents. We see, all of this points to a God who didn't create willy-nilly, who didn't create haphazardly or with mediocrity. The design and creation points to a designer. And God saw that it was good. And on day six, as he stops and contemplates all that he's created, we see in verse 31, he concludes God saw all that he had made and it was very good. You know, that includes us. But as we keep going and we pull back the curtain of the story, we see a God, God is one God who exists in three persons. And then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. He exists in perfect community with himself. And this is what we see a personal God created from relationship for relationship. You see, the trees bear fruit for whom? The lights are created to mark out the days and the seasons and the years for, for what? For whom? You see, out of desolation and emptiness and chaos, God creates an order and beauty, making a place for mankind to thrive. You see, everything was designed with us in mind. We read, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful, increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish and the birds. Every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth, every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and birds of the sky and the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. And see, all of this points to God's special care for mankind. His care for mankind is demonstrated by his provision of of a paradise. It's this bountiful garden. Mankind won't have to scrap and scrape for food. Why did God create the world? Because he wanted to. We're here because God wanted us here. Someone else has written, for first there was eternal love, then there was a vast purpose, then there was a mighty creation, then there was a great fall, then there was a willing Savior. It is a very short distance from Genesis 1-1 to John 3-16, for God so loved the world. The God who created you also loves you. And so the long and the short of the story begins with a God who is wiser and bigger, even better than we dreamed and closer than we could imagine. He's a personal God who created mankind not out of his loneliness, but out of his love. The personal didn't evolve from the impersonal. The intelligent didn't originate from the unintelligent the living didn't come from the non-living we've been made by a personal intelligent relational living god in his likeness you see god wrote us into his story creating mankind is the pinnacle of creation and then he says he says this is very good and from this creation, we learned, we've learned these things. The story of God begins with an eternal God who has a forever perspective and plan. He's a sovereign God who creates with power and order. A good God who creates with beauty and design. A personal God who creates from relationship for relationship and it's only then when I, when I begin to get my bearings that we begin to find ourselves in the stage of this unfolding drama of God's story. We were made in the image of creator God. And the implications of that is that we were made to reflect God's glory to the world. And we read, and the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there He put the man he had formed. It's interesting that that word "form" describes the activity of, of a potter. God is pictured as, as a potter who shapes and molds from the dust. The word implies that God deliberately did this, shaping mankind with with tender care and detail and attention and breathing his life into him. And using language that we can understand about God, God created us not just with his word. He handcrafts us. That gives us dignity and value and worth. You see, from a strictly financial and physical standpoint, the the chemicals in the average human body, get this, (laughs) the chemicals in the average human body are worth less than $15. (laughs) And yet, while we are but dust, we are priceless to our Creator. We are priceless to God. You see, what gives us value is the fact that we are made in his image and in his likeness. That means that we'll forever be separated from the animals. You may have a pet dog or cat or, or, or hamster or pot pig, whatever it is. And you may love them and, and treat them as one of your family. However, your pets are, are not made in the image of God. You are. For example, we we know right from wrong. A dog doesn't know right from wrong. You can train a dog to do what it will tell you, but it it has no conscience that causes it to think, man, I I really shouldn't be eating out of the trash can right now. I need to eat healthier and, and take care of my body. Your dog's not thinking that. A mouse that invades your house doesn't have a moral conscience. It doesn't lie awake at night wondering if if it was right to eat the tops off of all your Hershey kisses. (laughs) In the image of God, we have the ability and the desire to seek God and understand him. Your cat isn't wrestling with those things. (laughs) It's also the image of God that imparts true significance to each one of us. We we know that each person has value and worth. Everyone matters to God. Small or great, rich or poor, young or old, educated, uneducated, healthy or sick, strong or weak, from the from the unborn to the decrepit. You see, I have more in common with an enslaved, impoverished two-year-old orphan in India than my dog or my cat. Because both of us are made in the image of God. Understand to be created in God's image means that that a relationship of close fellowship can exist between God and man, unlike the relationship of God with the rest of his creation. Our greatest claim to dignity is our created capacity to know God, to to be in a personal relationship with him, to love him, and, and to worship him. You see, because we're most truly human when we are in fellowship with our creator. God created Adam and Eve to have fellowship with him, to love, to worship, to to serve. But another implication we read in Genesis 2, 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. Made in his image, he entrusted us to care for his creation. You see, we were made to carry on God's work in the world that he had created. In chapter 1, God gave this mandate. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth. Subdue it. Rule over the fish and the birds and every living thing is sometimes called the the cultural mandate, to subdue the earth means to study it and develop it and, and bring it under control. It's a basis for agriculture and industry and commerce and enterprise and exploration and art and music and drama and literature and education and research and technology and progress and innovation. God has given us the responsibility of being stewards of his creation. See, that's why when people say, (laughs) that's when people say, you know, I really don't care about the environment. God's got it. I kind of cringe inside. Because that's one of the things that God has called us to. You see, inexcusable cruelty to animals, needless, irresponsible destruction of God's creation, trashing our planet without, without regard for God's creation is irresponsible, unacceptable, and foolish. See, God has called us to be responsible guardians of what he has made, using it wisely, respectfully, intelligently, And now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. God gives Adam a job. He says, Adam, I want you to name the animals, and they have this animal parade, and and, and he's naming the animals, and in the ancient world, the right to name indicates rulership, the right to to rule, and so Adam begins to organize and and order the creation, and it's out of this work that, that God's given him that he's like, man, I need help. And so God creates the woman, creates Eve to come alongside and and to help him. Which leads to our final implication, we were made to enjoy relationship with God and others. You see, I think one of the things that our culture struggles with today is everybody finding what is my identity? What makes me who I am? Who am I? The ancient Babylonian myth would answer, you are the product of the gods to make their life easier. The modern myth would assert, you are a product of random chance in this purposeless uh, universe. I remember reading in in college, uh, a philosopher who said that life is but an empty bubble floating in a sea of nothingness. Woo! That's hopeful. (laughs) And no, the Bible, God says, you are a personal creation of a personal God who cares for you. He has created you male and female, has placed you in a relationship with himself and others, giving you a role, giving you stewardship in his creation. You see, this should have a profound effect on how we view humanity. The image of God must form and inform how we see our lives, how we see injustice. In fact, a lot of the issues we're facing in our culture today are image-of-God issues. Racism, prejudice, sexism, genocide, pornography, sex trafficking, strip clubs, abortion are all image-of-God issues. God's personal commitment to man began by creating him in his likeness and personally breathing life into him. But I think it's I think it's amazing and striking as well that God's immediate God had this immediate presence in the garden. Because we read later in Genesis chapter three that God is is taking walks in the garden, and it's mentioned as if it was a common thing for him to do. And imagine the anticipation of each day of, of seeing God walk through the garden where you live, speaking with him, walking with him. You see, the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation can be summed up in part with three words God with us. That's the story of the Bible. Throughout the Bible, heaven invades earth with the presence of God. Creation, though, is not just about God with us, but God for us. In Genesis 2, we read, Thus the heavens and earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Was God tired? (laughs) No. God wasn't tired. God didn't need rest because he was tired. God decided to cease from work on the seventh day to give us an example of how we're to live. We were built to work. We have responsibilities. However, we are also built to rest. When you think about this in music, music is, is full of rest. During rest, you don't play, and that's what makes music beautiful and unique. You see, if you play a tune without rest, it just sounds like a bunch of notes. There's no rhythm. There's no melody. God has intentionally and beautifully built rest into our lives. And if we keep playing through the rest, we aren't creating better music. We're just making noise. God didn't have to rest. He didn't have to give us this example. But because he loves us, because he knows we need it, he incorporated rest into his creation. God rested to teach us that spiritually we must enter into his rest. He built a reminder that our relationship with him is is not dependent on all the things that we do for him. But it's found in resting and trusting in his work for our lives. And so we have to stop depending on on what we can do and start resting on what only he can do. God's rest gives people time to reflect on eternal things. Life is more than work. He offers us rest. And that, I believe, is a picture of his love and concern for creation. So do you know why you're here? It's not just for your enjoyment, but for his glory, the complete expression of all that God is. And so since I'm, I'm more than just a giant glutinous jelly bag, God has designed me to, to display his glory, to fulfill his purpose. I've been designed for an intended eternal purpose and relationship with my creator. The book of Ecclesiastes says it this way. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. If we're to discover Noah's purpose, we must know the one who alone is eternal, our creator. God is the beginning, the middle, and the end of all things. Everything comes from him. Everything continues by him. Everything finds its ultimate purpose in him. So I encourage you to to stick with us through the long story short because it doesn't take long to realize that everything goes sideways. Stick with us through the unfolding drama of God's story. The beauty, the order, the design of God's perfect creation while while enjoyed only in part today will one day become a reality to every person who finds their rest in Jesus. Imagine what it will be like to be a part of God's recreation, to live as things were first intended. So let me just finish with a few takeaways as we close this morning. Maybe you're here this morning and you're you're not sure what you think of the Bible. I encourage you, come all six weeks as we unpack the long story short of the Bible. Get to know God's story. Get to know your part in it. Secondly, settle the matter of who made you in in the world. Will you believe what God says about himself? Will you submit to the one who set the stars in place? Refresh your belief that God has a plan and purpose for your life. Learn to love as God has loved you. Pursue the relationship that God created you for. If you would, just today, this week, as as you're doing workout in the yard when it stops snowing... (laughs) when you're driving the work, when you're going these different places and doing things to to stop and recognize God's fingerprints all over his creation, all over your life. And give him thanks. Give him praise. Thank you, God, for, for making these things so beautiful and intricate and with design and order. Take a moment to grasp the way he's designed you to have a special relationship with himself. Take time to to grasp the way that he's designed you with abilities to put put him on display, to give him glory. I love this quote from Olympic athlete uh, Eric Little from the movie Chariots of Fire. He said, I believe God made me for a purpose. But he also made me fast, and when I run, I feel his pleasure. Whatever you do, do it all for the glory of the Creator God. The psalmist concludes Come, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our God, our Maker and Creator. Let's pray.